Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher. Today's episode features an incredible conversation that I had with a literal comics legend, Larry Hopper. Few people can say that they created, drew, wrote, edited, and helped to adapt comics for screen and video games, but Larry Hama can. Larry started in comics fairly young and his work extends over decades, but it really started as a young Japanese-American kid reading comic books in New York. Now, you may know his work from G.I. Joe, which he not only created for comics, characters and all, but wrote for Marvel from 1982 to 1994. He also edited the comic book The Nom over its seven-year run and has drawn and written books for characters like Wolverine, Elektra, Iron Fist, and so many more. But while Larry's work in the comics industry is impressive, his life and career outside the industry has been nothing less than extraordinary. Larry has also written for both animated and live-action television, video games, been in a rock band, performed on Broadway, and more. And he is definitely not done. His Iron Fist miniseries came out last year, and he is writing Wolverine Patch, releasing this month. Okay, you get the picture. I love Larry. You're going to love Larry. Let's hear about Larry Hama's life from the man himself. got into comic books pretty early as a kid, right? Well, I started reading them very early. The first comics I remember were like Uncle Scrooge comics and you know, Walt Disney comics and Dell comics and um, Disney stuff, Bugs Bunny and that whole thing. And then, of course, in those days, every kid had a stack of comics. In the 50s, I'd be hard put to remember a kid I knew that didn't have a stack of comics in the closet. People forget there was a time where that was just comics were just comics. Like you just read them and that's Absolutely. what it was. For you though, like when you picked up your first comic as you're reading comics, and I think people are very split on this next question. How did comics feel at that time for you? Did you automatically go, I want to tell these kind of stories or I wish these stories were being told when you were younger? Well, you know, I was really fascinated by Paul Barks, Uncle Scrooge. I was also getting Superman and Superboy and Batman at a time when, when those characters were pretty mild. <laughs> it was uh, before Dark Knight and before like Superman was actually killing people and stuff. And, uh, and I even read like my girl cousin Ted Baldy's Lois Lane comics. I read them. You know, in fact, when I was doing GI Joe, I got a lot of letters from girls. And we're talking about, you know, at that time, the readership was like 10 years old, between like 9 to like 14 or so. And I started getting letters from girls, and they all said, I started reading my brother's G.I. Joe comics, and, and I really liked them because the girls actually do things. Well, and that was, that was really important to you, too, right? Like, I feel like you've talked at length that you're like, if a character is going to be there, they were going to be real 
Yeah, and participate and be treated just like everybody else. The thing that stuck in my mind about the letters I got from girls on G.I. Joe is that they said they don't stand around and take showers all the time. And they're not standing around with their palms nailed to their foreheads, you know, bemoaning. Or fainting. Or, yeah, have to be saved by a guy. And I thought it was important to try to turn that around and, like, have have the female characters, like, save the male characters once in a while. <laughs> you know, shake them up a bit. And, um, you know, but getting back to my fascination with Barks, I love the junior woodchucks, the whole concept of them. I've always said, you know, well, basically, you know, G.I. Joe is just the junior woodchucks with guns. <laughs> I'm sorry, like, I'm geeking out over here because the junior woodchucks is like one of those things that has really stood the test of time. Like, it, even oh, in yeah. the new DuckTales, there's, the junior woodchucks are still there. Yeah, but the junior woodchucks are such a fascinating fantasy. I mean, I see the roots of, like, even Harry Potter there. This fantasy of like being a part of something where the kids were empowered, and the very fact that there was a, this funny animal universe meant that I could fantasize being part of it because it didn't matter if I didn't look like everybody else. And the way Bart's wove in actual real things, you know, I, I, there was one issue of Uncle Scrooge where the, the Junior Woodchucks. We're in this competition with this girl organization, like the Girl Scouts. They weren't called the Girl Scouts, of course. But, and they were going to have this, like, you know, scouting competition, you know, with the girls. And, and the junior woodchucks go, oh, this is going to be a snap. <laughs> and they get out into the field, and, and holy smoke, <laughs> they're getting beaten. At every turn, you know, and these girls are like, you know, whipping out engineering drawings and building cantilever bridges. That really struck me, you know, because it, it wasn't just like, you know, uh, they just magically build this bridge. You know, in a lot of comics, things just appear. They don't show you how it happens. And the same thing used to be true of fights. You know, fights used to be what I call balletic. You know, they were just people posing. And voguing like they were fighting, you know, there was no cause and effect. There was no panel where, oh, it's the setup. He's cocking his fist. The second panel, boom, he hits the guy. Third panel, this is a follow through. There was none of that, and all that changed in comics with the advent of kung fu movies, the American consciousness. All of a sudden. The entire American audience wanted to see how it was going on, you know, because they were now educated to that on the screen. You know, that like, oh, a shot without any cuts where the guy jumps up and hits the guy in the face and the guy falls over. You know, no cuts. You know, it's, it's a practical. So instead of just being able to get away with that, now you have to actually show it. And that got reinforced in the movies. They used to do this in the movies too. In a John Wayne salute. The guy would just be knocked out. Like it wouldn't it wouldn't really Yeah, they would just be they would cut. You know, fast cuts. You know, a guy would like swing, cut to a guy getting hit. And that way, you know, a, a cutter, the editor, could just like piece together all the footage and, and you get a fight. But the Matrix changes all that. The action movie could categorize pre-Matrix 
and post-Matrix, you know, because after the Matrix, you had to show it. Because not only in the Matrix do you see all of it, it slows it down to right. an exponential <laughs> amount of detail. And I think that's it's so interesting to me how you're able to like really still describe the pre and post, particularly with comic books and panels and fights and what it was. That also like begs the question for me, what was it about comic books for you that was so special for you that it's now followed you through your entire life? Well, it's what I could do. It's not something I, I started out. I didn't, you know, at the age of seven say, oh, I'm going to be a comic book artist. I never thought I'd be a writer. And I still don't consider myself a writer. Neither do I call myself an artist. I'm a person who draws because I think the word artist, like the word poet, is an acclamation, not a job description. So, <laughs> I mean, Calling yourself a poet is kind of pretentious, I've always thought. Like, calling yourself an artist is a little pretentious, too, because it sort of self-assumes that what you do is art. <laughs> and whether or not it's art is not something that you yourself can determine. It's what's determined by the end consumer or the public. I've never thought about it from the perspective of it is about perception. It's about are you considered art? And then therefore, are you an artist? But yeah, wow. My next question was like, you're an all around artist, but you're an all around person who does a lot of things. You have been on Broadway, you have rock band, you draw, you have written. But it, it all goes back to getting on that train. So like all these things that I've done, I have absolutely no idea how to do them. You know, I never went to college. I had a full Regents, New York State Regents scholarship to Pratt. And I dropped out on registration day. Went downtown and got myself a job drawing shoes for Sears Urban Catalogs. You know, and I got my first acting job completely by accident. In the 70s, like 75 or something, I was in the elevator in the building that I lived in. And a woman gets on the elevator and she looks at me and she says, are you an actor? And I said, well, no. And she said, well, do you want to be one? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, she's producing an off-Broadway production of Moby Dick at the South Bay Seaport. And she, and she needed three harpooners. <laughs> I got to check this out, you know, because I don't know. I knew nothing about it. It was a real learning experience. So somebody saw me in that show and I started getting other gigs. And then um, maybe a, a year later, I got a call and, We'd like you to audition for this Broadway musical. A Broadway musical. I said, well, I neither sing nor dance. <laughs> I actually really wanted to ask you about that. You've done a lot of things, but I haven't seen singing or dancing in that repertoire. <laughs> How did you end up getting cast in the original production of Pacific Overtures? She was insistent. She said, like, your telephone number starts with the same three digits as mine. Like, where are you? And I said, I was on 48th Street, 5th Avenue. And she said, well, we're in Rockefeller Center. We're two blocks away. If you come over right now, within the next 10 minutes, we'll see you 15 minutes of your time. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Well, what the heck? It's 15 minutes, right? <laughs> so I, I walk over. She sees me. She says, I got to take you in to see the Mr. Prince. And she takes me in to see Hal Prince. And Hal Prince looks at me and he says, I want to see him in the theater tomorrow. And say, come back with a song. So 
the next day I come back and I've got my guitar with me. There's like two guys ahead of me. The first guy gets up and does uh, the impossible dream. Textbook audition material. <laughs> <laughs> and so I march up on stage and I plug in my little pig those amp and I give them the first two verses of Just Like a Woman by Bob Dylan because I do a pretty nifty guitar riff for it. So Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim and Paul Demignani, the conductor, and Patricia Burke, the choreographer, who did the choreographer for Greece. You know, these are like the top musical theater people in the country. I am a musical nerd losing my mind right now. Do you just sitting here and listing these people out? Yeah. And so I'm looking at them and they're like, their sort of jaws are slack. <laughs> Gemignani says, could you give us another verse and this time don't imitate Bob Dylan? And I said, I'm not imitating Bob Dylan. This is the way I'm singing. <laughs> and so the next day I go home and I, I think, well, you know, that was a waste of 15 minutes. And the next day they call me and say, well, can you come over and sign a contract? And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, I guess I'll be a spear carrier. So I go over there and they put this sheaf of paper on the table and it's an equity Broadway producers principles contract. So I signed it and I did the show for the next year. I love that because I think so many people allow that question of why am I doing this? And I feel like what I'm hearing from you is why not? Yeah. But all these things are things that if you jump into the deep end of the pool, you will either learn to swim or drown. And this is the way I felt about just about everything I've done. I had no idea how to write a story. But I, uh, I approached doing a story from the visual end. That's why I'm able to do it. So you acted for a while. You did some soap operas. You were on MASH. I was on Saturday Night Live, too. I'm sorry. Wait. Time out. Nope. Nope. Stop. What? Can you repeat what you just said? I was at the Apocalypse Now skit with Martin Sheen on Saturday Night Live, wearing a loincloth and painted white from head to foot. <laughs> it was a very surreal experience because it was the second cast. Okay, so all of this happens. You're still drawing. You're still getting on all of these trains. What changed and how did you end up at Marvel? Like, what is that story? The way I ended up at Marvel was that I got a job offer at DC to be an editor. So I went over to D.C. to be an editor for about a year. I remember walking in the first day of the job and sitting down at my editor's desk and thinking, what the heck does an editor do? <laughs> I had no idea at all what the job entailed. So I just sort of started making it up as I went along. And Alan Milgram, another artist, had also been hired as an editor. So this is a, sort of a revolutionary thing at the time for DC to hire two, quote, artists, unquote, guys that draw to be editors rather than guys that write. And I was in charge of Wonder Woman, Super Friends, Jonah Hex, The Warlord, and a bunch of other books. Almost exactly a year later, DC had this big implosion of sales, the major sales problem. So they... They had what they called their implosion, 
where they uh, they laid off the most recent hires. Al Milgram and I were let go, and Al Milgram like landed on his feet immediately at Marvel. You know, we just said, "Hey, you know, come over here." So Al goes over to Marvel, and about a month later, Al calls me and says, "Hey, you know, the water's fine. Why don't you come over here?" <laughs> so I go over there and I talk to Jim Shooter, and and I get a gig at Marvel being in charge of Crazy Magazine. So for those who don't know what Crazy Magazine is, can you describe, like, briefly describe? (laughs) Well, you know, Mad had been a big success in the 50s, and and everybody tried to get out a copy of Mad. There were, like, somebody had one called Cracked, and there was one called Sick. and All books that I used to pick up as a kid. Right, and, and Stan said, oh, let's have Crazy. So we had Crazy Magazine. It was like the Marvel version of Mad. That actually leads me to my next question, which is interesting, because you came over the water's fine. Right. You've previously talked a lot, and I really love your perspectives on representation and whether it is writers of color, artists of color, whether it is gender on page and screen. There's this almost common sense, of course we should have more diversity and more representation. It just makes sense in your mind. When you first entered the comic book industry, how did that look and how do you think it's evolved? Well, it's evolved weirdly in two directions, I think. In the early 70s, in my perception, the comic book industry was pretty damn colorblind. If you could do the work, you were golden. I felt always sort of welcome in the comics community because it was all about you welcomed in whoever you thought was good. If somebody could pull their weight, that was all that, that was important. I never felt any of that, except for the vestiges of these things that are sort of left over from previous generations. The conceptual stuff, you know, it's like this ingrained sort of prejudice that people don't even notice anymore. You know, like coloring Asian people bright yellow. It wasn't like, oh, this is policy that we have to do it this way because you know we we really want to demean these people. No, it's because that's the way it had always been done, you know. So that's why you got like you know slanty-eyed yellow Asians, and you got black people with big puffy lips, even if the people that were doing them themselves were Asian or black. <laughs> So this is interesting to me. Do you feel like, as a person who draws, what was your kind of impression and impact? Because, I mean, one of the first books you ever worked on was Iron Fist. I mean, it was the first book at Marvel, correct? Well, in my first monthly comic at Marvel, I had done short stories. But yeah, I mean, I thought stuff had to change. But the only way that was going to happen is for people of color to come into editorial. And that was going to make a big difference. You know, when I got to Crazy, the previous editor's assistant was this 17-year-old kid from Queens named Jim Owsley. So I had sort of inherited him as my assistant. So I sat down with him the first day. And I said, well, okay, let's get all this stuff sorted out, you know, the rate and this stuff. And he says, well, I don't have a rate. He says, uh, I've been doing this as an intern. I don't get paid. Well, okay, we got to change that. You know, well, from, from that one, you're the managing editor. You 
know, you're on the masthead and you're going to get, we'll work out a pay deal for you. So, you know, years later, he now calls himself Christopher Priest. He eventually became an editor. You know, and he said, you know, that was like a real eye-opening thing for him because, you know, he can remember being the intern there and other staffers coming by and like rubbing his head for luck. <laughs> wow. And you still had a real bullpen at that point. There was a real bullpen, but it, there wasn't a lot of stuff being drawn in the bullpen. The bullpen was basically for pay stuff and correction. Okay. Most artists, uh, pencilers, inkers, did all their work at home and sent it in. We had drawing tables there, but you know they were just people had to do some last minute touch ups or whatever, and we had colorists on staff working there also. But back then there was a real bullpen with real wooden drawing tables and big pots of rubber cement, the pieces of paper being you know glued together to make the pages, rather than uh, and there wasn't a computer in sight. It was a big difference. What was it about the stories at Marvel that made you stay? Like, you stayed on this train for a very long time. See, at that time, there were two styles of writing for comics. What we called the DC method and the Marvel method. The DC method was more like full screenplay. The writer had to describe every panel and have all the dialogue in that panel. The Marvel method was plot and dialogue. The writer wrote a plot in which he described or asked for what was going on. The artist drew from the plot and made his own panel breakdowns and whatever. And then it went back to the writer who then wrote in all the dialogue and the captions. So this gave most of the creative freedom to the artists. So they could take a concept and really expand on be really inventive with panel shapes or what we call budget, how much space you allow to get anything across. And the stuff was much more explosive and visual because a lot of the creative energy was coming from the art side. So for you as a person who draws and as a person from New York, who is a third generation American, like, how do you find your voice in all of this? You know, do you feel like you were able to bring your voice to the work you did? And how has that evolved? It's funny that you say voice because I, the one single issue I'm most known for is a silent issue that has no words in it at all, which brings me around to, you know, my methodology on storytelling is all from the visual sense. You know, I craft a story by trying to visualize the whole thing in my head as a visual sequence, rather than thinking of it in words. I don't, I don't think in terms of words. I'm also dyscalculic, which means that I can't do simple arithmetic. It's sort of like dyslexia, but I have a little bit of dyslexia also. You know, for, for instance, the only way I can remember that Christmas is on December 25th is I have a mental picture in my head of a calendar page with a red 25 my entire life, I've had to come up with little tricks like that because I can't remember numbers as abstractions. I can see numbers as their visual symbols. <laughs> I don't know if that explains it. But anyway, 
No, it does very well. And it it makes it even more interesting when you think about the stories of you tackling things like G.I. Joe or even things like the Nam, right? Because there's so many characters, there's so many storylines that you being able to do the work that you did on G.I. Joe and then keeping a timeline as an editor, that's, that's amazing. Well, the thing about coming up with the stories visually is that you have to combine all these elements that, that you've got nailed down already. And, and it's just a matter of chops. And doing comics is, is a very bizarre combination of chops. There's you know hundreds of guys who could draw 10 times better than me, but they can't do the acting. They draw beautiful people who are sort of like uninteresting but beautiful mannequins who stand around voguing, basically. And my thinking is that every aspect of a character's meme, their gesture, the slightest movement in their facial features is part of the acting. You combine that with the lighting and the framing and the pace, how you pace it out. These are all chops, these are all skills that you acquire over time. It's an odd selection to gather together. And it's very rare that you can find you know, one person that can do it all. I'm pretty good at doing the visual storytelling and, and getting down basic storyboard. I'm not a very good finish artist. I'm not a terrific renderer. But I try to concentrate on what I know I can do and what I know I can be good at. At the same time, I'm always aware of this really important thing that Neil Adams told me years ago in the 70s, that I had to stop settling. He said that when I was like, working on drawing, he said, you're settling. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I can tell that you see something in your head that's 10 times better than what you're drawing. But the realistic part of your brain is saying, I can't pull that off. It's too hard to draw. So I'm going to settle for this thing that I already know how to draw. This standard eyeball that I always use. This one of the three ears that I've got memorized. This number seven and the eight noses that I know. (laughs) (laughs) This is the way a lot of people work, from templates. And he said, instead of settling, you should try to draw that really difficult thing. And you have to accept that the first time you do that, it's it's probably going to suck. Even the second or third or fourth time, it's going to suck. But the magic happens on the day that it stops sucking. (laughs) But but you don't get to that day when it stops sucking unless you have all those other days before where it sucked. If you don't take that risk, you know, and have the pain, and he said, look, every time you, you settle and draw the thing that you already know how to do, it's like going to the gym and doing one push-up. And if you really push it every time, that's like doing 100 push-ups every time out. So which is going to benefit you better? Well, and I think you kind of mentioned that you had to find your voice. I would imagine that that was a little helpful <laughs> on that journey is being able to take those risks. Yeah, you have to take the risks and you have to also understand the reality of what you're doing. When I worked for Wallace Wood, 
was a legendary cartoonist. I was his assistant when I first started out. And I'd been working for him already for like a couple of months. And I asked him if he would like take a look at some of the sample drawings that I've been doing. I was putting together a portfolio. And he looked at me and he said, listen, I'll tell you when it stops sucking. So at this point in time, you're getting all of this sage advice. You could have stopped. Like you could have been like, okay, I suck. This is difficult. And you didn't. Like, what was it for you that kept you going? You have to have a fairly thick skin. And it has to do with having the, the faith in yourself and not caring what other people are saying. You know? Look, I went to a specialized art high school, and, and there were like dozens of people there that could draw rings around. And they never went anywhere with it because they got shot down the first time they got rejected. You know, 90% of getting ahead in any of the arts is getting past the incredible amount of rejection that you have to, <laughs> to wade through to get your foot on the shore. That's all it is. I mean, do you feel like there's a piece of advice you wish you would have given your 17, 18, 19, 25-year-old self, knowing everything that you know now? Other than keep flossing? <laughs> flossing is very important. Yes. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? But yeah, I think don't give up. First of all, if you're approaching it as a, from the point of view of like, oh, I want to be a star, then you've pretty much had it. You know, if your attitude is, I, I'm just going to do the best job I can, then stuff will come to you. If not fame and glory, at least you know, internal satisfaction, knowing that, that you've given it your best shot. So my last couple of questions actually deal with one of the things that I, I love about your approach and your writing and the way you've talked about stories and this authenticity of, and I heard this one story where you're talking about you could write a story and you can get to the end and you would have written something for a character and you look again and you go, that character wouldn't have done that. And then you have to start all over again. And I thought that was so profound in this idea of being authentic, not just to yourself, but to the character itself. How do you approach authentic storytelling and bringing the voice out of these characters, whether it's how they move, how they pose, how they would beat somebody up? Because I feel like Deadpool would beat somebody up completely different than Wolverine would. I just feel like those sure. are very different. And even looking at the nom, right? The storytelling that was brought in that was very real and being the editor on that and the importance of that parallel to G.I. Joe, which I think you did very much like these characters also embody real people that I know. How do you approach that authenticity of voice, whether it is image-wise, the way you think about storytelling, or their actual dialogue? You have to walk in their shoes. You just can't create this mannequin and, and assign it attributes. You have to construct a character that's as real as you can make it, and then inhabit the character and walk around as the character. And like you said, sometimes I get to a point where I realize the plot is dictating what the characters do. And to me, that's anathema. The plot should never trump the characters. If the story doesn't come out of the true interactions of the characters, then it's just flat choreography. And uh, soulless creatures are just 
marching through this choreography that you've created. Not only are the characters reacting to each other, but there's a certain amount of real world chaos. And <laughs> you have to have that, or else it's all perfection, it's all a fairy tale. So you have to have the characters interacting and being themselves, and then all of a sudden, fate throws a monkey wrench into it. And then you have to deal with that as a story element. But you have to have the characters deal with that monkey wrench as the story element. That's all there is to it, because, you know, you, that's why I've never written an outline. I write everything literally page by page. I don't know what comes on page seven till I get to page six. I just make it up as I go along. I'm up to 287 issues of G.I. Joe. I had no idea how I got there. (laughs) (laughs) 287 issues. You have seen a lot of evolution in the industry. Marvel's Voices Identity, all of the characters are either Asian, Asian America, Pacific Islander. Do you feel like this is something... Like when you started, because I don't think all of these characters even existed when you started at Marvel, that you would ever see happen. Well, I thought it was going to be an eventuality because I looked around and I saw, well, where's all the new talent coming from? It certainly isn't coming from those wasp neighborhoods. (laughs) All of a sudden we were getting in second generation Chinese Canadians. Before that, we had all the Pinoy influx, the Filipinos, and then an influx from from Latin America, Argentina, Garcia Lopez, and some terrific artists coming out of there, and Mexico, and China. It was all the wall. (laughs) So what I'm hearing is the influx of characters was inevitable based upon the fact that you had an influx of influence that came in because that's who was coming into the industry. Exactly. You know, and as the creator types moved up the ladder and moved into editorial, more changes happened because all of a sudden there was a voice at the editorial meeting. That voice hadn't been there before. I mean, that goes back to when you have that experience, that representation in the room, It just changes the dynamic of the conversation. I think people forget sometimes storytellers have a frame of reference and it's their lives. Absolutely. You know, because otherwise, you know, you're pulling it out of the hat. That's the thing. You have to go out and have some sort of life in order to be able to write about anything that has a grounding. It's something that people can relate to. This has been... Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking all this time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Larry Hama for coming on Marvel's Voices. And don't forget, he's writing Wolverine Patch. The first issue is out next week, so make sure you add it to your pull list, pick it up at your local comic book store, or wherever you get your comics. Next week on the show, I am joining you in the listener seat. 
I'll be passing the proverbial mic over to my friend, journalist, host, and author, Jesse J. Holland. Jesse joins us as a guest host to interview the brilliant writer, director, and producer, John Ridley, about his love of comics, the evolution of Black narratives, and his current run on Black Panther. You will not want to miss this conversation. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk, and me, Angelique Roche. Our creative producer is Harry Goh. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Joe Duball. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Y. Nine.